that Israel will be able to destroy Hamas in a final sense. As Israel's assault on Gaza stretches on, some wonder if its stated goal of destroying Hamas is even possible. For Sunday, December 31st, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. Coming up, more on how the Israeli offensive could actually help Hamas politically. Later in the hour, does staring down the start of another new year make you anxious? You're not alone. I sometimes make a list of things I mean to do, and I cross out a couple things. What I need to do is to be present. So I do less as a radical act. And then how one writer faces life's uncertainties by tapping childlike enchantment. We rarely get the answers we're looking for. We often get a completely different answer about a completely different thing. That's after news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israel's prime minister says governments that criticize his country's fight against Hamas are, quote, blowing hot air, lies and vanity. And Benjamin Netanyahu says the war will likely continue for many months until Hamas is destroyed. NPR's Kerry Khan has more from Tel Aviv. Netanyahu reiterated his resolve to continue fighting despite mounting international pressure on Israel to limit the heavy death toll in Gaza. Netanyahu specifically criticized South Africa, which filed a case in the UN's top court accusing Israel of genocide against Palestinians. No South Africa, he said Sunday morning. It's not we who have come to perpetrate genocide. It is Hamas. It would murder all of us if it could, he added. Hamas officials say Israel is indiscriminately killing civilians and blocking aid and vital medical care to the desperate population. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. China is renewing its threats to take over the self-governing island of Taiwan. In his New Year's address to the nation, President Xi Jinping said reunification with Taiwan is inevitable. NPR's John Ruwich reports the remarks come about two weeks before presidential elections on the island. Beijing considers Taiwan a part of China, even though it's been governed separately since 1949. She said people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait should be bound by a, quote, common sense of purpose and share in the glory of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. In Taiwan, though, polls have shown a growing majority do not see Taiwan and China as belonging to the same country. While China's ruling Communist Party under Xi has tightened its grip, Taiwan has evolved into a vibrant democracy, which will be on display when voters go to the polls on January 13th. Beijing is watching closely and has called the frontrunner and current Vice President Lai Qingde a dangerous separatist. John Ruich, NPR News. The White House is sounding increasingly confident that the U.S. economy will avoid the recession that some economists had predicted. Empire's Asma Khalid reports the goal has been a so-called soft landing to curb inflation without a big economic downturn. The White House points out that inflation has dipped while unemployment has remained below 4%. President Biden's top economic advisor, Lael Brainard, says that's a big change from what some economists were forecasting a year ago. Still, she says there is more work to do in lowering costs. And that is where the president is continuing to fight. There are certain areas where Americans continue to see really challenging affordability. Healthcare is primary among them. In the meantime, survey after survey has shown a disconnect between positive economic indicators like low unemployment and the president's approval rating. Asma Khalid, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Investigators are looking into what caused a fatal fire at a home in Braintree. Braintree fire officials say a passerby called 911 shortly before 5 this morning to report heavy flames shooting out from a home on Hobart Ave. It's where firefighters found the body of an elderly man in a closet. Fire Lieutenant Frederick Viola says there were no working smoke detectors in the home. One of Boston's biggest challenges heading into 2024 is a shortage of police officers. That's according to City Council President Ed Flynn. He shared his concerns in a press conference yesterday about the state of the City Council. Flynn says Boston's police department is down about 400 to 500 officers. Most of our police officers now are working 16 hours a day consistently for four or five days a week. That's unhealthy for a city. It's unhealthy for an officer and his or her family, and that's when mistakes are made, but it's critical that we hire more police officers. Recently released data from the Boston Police Department show that nearly all violent crimes, including shootings, are down year over year in the city. Newcomers are invited to join the annual New Year's Day swim tomorrow morning in South Boston. The L Street Brownies have been hosting the event for more than a century. The group's president, Dan Monahan, says it's turned into a fundraiser for small nonprofits in the neighborhood. He believes it's a great way to start off the new year. This has everything to do with yourself meeting a challenge and you're getting involved in helping out small nonprofit groups that can use some financial help. So don't be afraid. Just lay in the bed. Come on out and join the rest of the world. It's a good time, and you're going to be glad you did it. The swim begins tomorrow morning at 10 at the M Street Beach in South Boston. Well, Boston is ringing in the new year with a slate of activities tonight. You can go to WBUR.org for a list of some of those events. First night fireworks go off at 7 on Boston Common. The second display will light up Boston Harbor beginning at midnight. The MBTA is free after 8 tonight, and it's expected to be a dry, cold night ahead with temperatures in the low 20s. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. We begin tonight's program by taking stock of the war between Israel and the militant group Hamas. In recent days, Israeli forces have expanded their operations in retaliation for Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. And they've done that through continued airstrikes and a ground offensive in Gaza, the territory that Hamas governs. Now, since the beginning of the war, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's stated goal has been to destroy Hamas. And while Israel's offensive has caused vast destruction and thousands of deaths in Gaza, it is not even clear if Israel can destroy Hamas. So what does all this mean for the future of Gaza and its leadership? To discuss, we've brought in Paul Solom. He's president and CEO of the Middle East Institute, which is a nonpartisan think tank focused on Middle East policy. I began our conversation by asking if he thinks that Israel's months-long siege of Gaza has done anything to weaken Hamas. Certainly, they are uh, degrading Hamas's capacity uh, to fight. They've uh, closed down many of their tunnels. Uh, they've killed a number, we don't know how many, of their fighters and leadership, but probably uh, a minor portion of that. Clearly, Hamas is well schooled in, uh, you know, hiding and staying out of the way and not being an obvious target. So I think uh, while seriously degraded, 
uh, Hamas is still able to launch rockets. I think depending on how this ends, it's possible that they could eventually sort of rearm and retool over time. But I do not think that Israel will be able to destroy Hamas uh, in a final sense. It is a big political movement, it's a big part of sort of Palestinian uh, political activism in general. And I think their fighters are well-schooled in clandestine operations. Mm. And, and it's been said many times that, you know, with the civilian deaths that have been as a result of Israel's assault, there may be people who become radicalized and want to strike back eventually. Yes, that's uh, very true. And uh, even some sketchy polling data shows that before October 7, Hamas's popularity was quite low in Gaza because basically they they were not very focused on governance. They're very mm. repressive. But the attacks of October 7, particularly the very massive uh, Israeli retaliation for sure, uh, makes people much more desperate and much more extreme in their reactions, as it has also uh, the Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians made Israeli public opinion move to the right as well. Mm. Well, you referred to the the political aims of Hamas, and, and I guess it's worth mentioning that Hamas has different wings to it. There's the armed military wing, uh, but there's also the political wing. Both have been involved with negotiations over hostages. Uh, so I wonder, what do you anticipate could be the future of the political wing of Hamas, especially if we get to a point where negotiations over hostages are completed? Well, there's really too many variables, and it's so much of a black box that it would be unrealistic to you know, attempt to predict. But obviously, there's different tendencies uh, within the Hamas leadership in general. There is the political leadership that had uh, entered into negotiations with the Israelis several times. So there's uh, part of Hamas which could be amenable to a political process. But clearly, Mr. Sinwar, who heads the military side and was really the architect of this attack, comes from a completely different wing, which is uh, one that completely rejects the existence of uh, the state of Israel as a Jewish state uh, and only would accept you know, a Palestinian state, which would have Jews and Arabs in it, but not a two-state solution. Hamas governs over two million people in Gaza. I wonder, based on your experience seeing these conflicts play out, what happens to them if Israel manages to defeat Hamas? Well, whether it achieves that goal or not, the reality is those 2 million or 2.3 million people, 20,000 of them have been killed. Many more have been maimed and injured. Uh, most of them are starving without food or water and with no medical supplies. Uh, they are uh, uh, the worst off population on the globe. Uh, if and when this war winds down as an armed conflict, Israel has said that it will not allow any, you know, the Palestinian Authority to come back into Gaza. So it's uncertain how Gaza will be governed. I fear that some of the right-wing elements in the Netanyahu government would want to maintain very, very terrible conditions in Gaza to convince more and more Palestinians from Gaza to leave, to flee, because many right-wing Israelis really feel that they cannot coexist with these Palestinians and they'd prefer them to leave. You refer to a potential scenario of what Israel might do if it manages to unseat Hamas. I wonder, do you see any role for neighboring Arab countries to play in the future of Gazans? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, what needs to happen, and I think this is what the U.S. is trying to achieve, 
is that uh, there needs to be a, uh, a, a support and a bolstering of the Palestinian Authority, which currently is on the West Bank. It has its own problems uh, of, of mismanagement and corruption and a very old leadership. That needs to be revamped and reformed. Uh, and that Palestinian Authority at some point should be enabled uh, after being reformed and strengthened to come back into the Gaza Strip uh, where it used to govern uh, before 2007, which it still has a lot of people on the payroll. Uh, that needs to be enabled and accepted by Israel. And in that context, many Arab countries, uh, they would step in to help as well. Uh, but that really needs to be in the context of a different political orientation from Israel that is open to discussing a two-state solution and a way forward for Israelis and Palestinians other than recurring war. We've been joined by Paul Salem, president and CEO of the Middle East Institute and co-editor of the book, Winning the Battle, Losing the War, addressing the drivers fueling armed non-state actors and extremist groups. Paul, thanks for being here. Thank you, Adrian, for having me. A global effort to stamp out certain undertreated diseases is making progress. As NPR's Narit Eisenman reports, countries are making strides in combating what global health officials call neglected tropical diseases. Dr. Albis Gabrielli is a top official in the World Health Organization's program for these diseases. And he stresses that the fact that for decades they'd been neglected doesn't mean they're obscure. We calculate that approximately 1 billion people are affected, so a significant proportion of the global population. The trouble is the people who contract these diseases have historically been among the world's lowest income citizens, living in some of the world's lowest resourced nations. People with no voice, living in, in poverty, in remote rural areas, and therefore the, the diseases are not, let's say, prioritized. By governments, by donors, and by private pharmaceutical companies who don't stand to make as much of a profit addressing them. But in the early 2000s, WHO and other global health partners came up with a plan to change that dynamic. They created an official list of 20 neglected tropical diseases to target with international research and cooperation. This year, the effort hit a major milestone. Iraq became the 50th nation in the world to eliminate the threat from at least one of the diseases on the list by stamping out a bacterial infection called trachoma. And it came just after two other nations, Benin and Mali, also stopped trachoma spread. Dr. Gabrielli says that's a major achievement. It's uh, one of the leading causes of preventable blindness in many parts of the world. The disease can be transmitted when flies land on an infected person's eyes and nose, coming into contact with contaminated discharge, then spreading it on. So Dr. Gabrielli says a key strategy was to administer antibiotics en masse to practically everyone in areas where trachoma was endemic. If you treat thousands of people at the same time, you decrease transmission rate in the environment, in the area where these people live. Another huge victory? Bangladesh became the first country to end the threat from not one, but two neglected tropical diseases in the same year, including a deadly illness that no other afflicted country has managed to beat. It's called visceral leishmaniasis, caused by a parasite that spread through the bite of the sandfly. Dr. Dinesh Mundal is a Bangladeshi research scientist. He recalls the scenes in the mid-2000s when he first started working with the government to combat this disease. I have seen hospitals full of patients. If you see, you know, how patients are suffering, it was miserable. 
the parasite attacks a person's liver, their spleen, causing their abdomens to swell. Really very shocking pictures. And the only treatment? It was a very painful injection. That had to be administered 30 times. But as a result of the new focus on visceral leishmaniasis, scientists realized something. A one-shot treatment with an antifungal drug originally developed by a U.S. pharmaceutical company for cancer and HIV patients might also be worth trying against visceral leishmaniasis. Mundell, who's with the research institute ICDDRB, assisted with testing it on a man in his 30s whose doctors had practically left him for dead. It was amazing. Within three days, he was feeling so good. WHO officials then helped negotiate a deal to drastically reduce the price of the drug in low-income countries. For all the progress, this year, the WHO added a new entry to the neglected tropical disease list, a gangrenous illness called Noma that mostly afflicts malnourished young children. Meanwhile, Mundal is concerned that Bangladesh's success with visceral leishmaniasis has led to a drop in international funding to ensure the disease doesn't return. He says there's still a lot to do. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Real Women Have Curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical about life's unexpected curves. Now playing amrep.org. Still ahead on 90.9 WBUR, we have a conversation with author Anne Lamont about ways to begin the new year on a positive and hopeful note. Stay with us. WBUR supporters include Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, a public nonprofit charitable organization committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice in Massachusetts. Since 1995, the fund has granted over $12 million to over 400 grassroots groups. The Lenny Fund.org. We can expect a dry, clear night for tonight, cooling down to the upper 20s. Right now, it's 39 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Hospital officials in Gaza say at least 35 people have been killed in Israeli strikes today. Those come a day after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the war against Hamas in Gaza would continue for many more months as he continues to resist international calls for a ceasefire. China's renewing its threats to take over the self-governing island of Taiwan. In his New Year's address, Chinese President Xi Jinping said that reunification with Taiwan is inevitable. It comes about two weeks before presidential elections are held in Taiwan. And at the weekend box office, Wonka has regained the top spot with an estimated $24 million in ticket sales in its third weekend. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. Let's face it, standing on the precipice of another new year can be daunting. It's this time when we are forced to take stock of all the stuff that has happened in our lives and in the world. We think about all the things we hope to gain in the new year and all the, all the things that maybe didn't happen in the last. All of this can be a lot. And on top of that, a ticking clock on New Year's Eve can add a lot of pressure. It might surprise you that Americans did not actually start to embrace the countdown widely until about the 1970s. We used to celebrate New Year's Day. You woke up on January 1st, you said Happy New Year. But by the 20th century, the clock and midnight become especially important. Alexis McCrossan is a history professor at Southern Methodist University. And she says there may be some grimmer reasons why the idea of a countdown was not always associated with celebration. In the 1950s, there were atomic bomb tests and the countdown to the dropping of the bomb and then to its detonation was televised. Three, two, one, zero. But later on, countdowns would have more positive connotations. You know, counting down to the Apollo moon missions or counting down the top 40 pop hits. And finally, in the 70s, they caught on as a way to ring out the old and ring in the new. Five, four, three, two, one, and a happy 1979. And yet, McCrossin says that counting down to the new year, it could still bring up angst. There's this sort of overwhelming sense that there just isn't enough time. There's never enough time. Not enough time for our friends and loved ones. Not enough time to accomplish all the things we want to accomplish. So this New Year's Eve, we are not going to focus on resolutions or dropping balls. Instead, we are going to focus on little ways to find some comfort as we step in to the new year. So for that, we are turning to author Anne Lamott. Uh, if you've ever needed some inspiration to write, you've probably known her from her classic Bird by Bird, some instructions on writing and life. Or if you've needed some strength and humor to make it through a rough patch, you might have reached one of her collections of essays on faith. Anne has written seven novels, many best-selling nonfiction titles. Anne Lamott, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adrian. It is so good to have you here. And, you know... This time of year, there's a lot of celebration. There's champagne and ball drops and big parties. But also at the same time, a lot of us can feel the weight of going through such a tough year, you know, whether it's people experiencing personal challenges or just trying to, you know, deal with all the turmoil that we see in this really complicated world. So... You know, for a lot of people, looking forward with hope can actually be a struggle. Like, how do you approach going into a new year? I always get outside and I look up. If you think about it, 
you never look up and go, oh, that's a medium moon. You know, whether it's a baby moon or a full moon or somewhere in between, you look up and you say, wow, that's so beautiful. And I rest more than usual. I believe that joy is peace on its feet and peace is joy at rest. I do actively things that will help me laugh. It might be a really funny movie. It might be the, the, a collection of New Yorker cartoons. I get together with my best girlfriend or, and we just make, you know, we just start telling the truth and the truth is pretty hilarious. You know, the absurdity of life, but it doesn't happen in my own pinball brain. It happens when I'm sharing with somebody. Sometimes I call my girlfriend, my, my best girlfriend, and I say, um, I hate everyone in all of life. And she always says, oh, I'm so glad you called. Come and get me. We need to go shopping. And then we'll start laughing. And we'll get in the car and we'll compare how annoying everybody is. And then um, we'll start laughing about it. So, so you've given us a few, I think, kind of simple steps we can use here, right? You said get out, look up, rest if you can. You mentioned at a certain point bringing hope. Um, which actually, it reminds me of, like, a lot of your writings are really funny and and really honest. But one thing that really comes across in a lot of them is this idea that the best thing that people can do is to show mercy and compassion to ourselves. And I think for a lot of people, that is a hard thing to do. Like, why is that so hard? And why do you say it's important for us to do anyway? Well, you know, I wrote a whole book on it, but the short form is that I, um, I think that when we were young, we were, we had these two qualities. We were so merciful and we were curious, you know, and, um, I mean, little kids can also be little monsters on the blacktop, but we had this sense of mercy. We gave away our sandwiches when other kids had forgotten theirs. We shared what we had, but at some point, I think we put it away in the drawer because they didn't grade for it, you know, and what we were, what we substituted for instead was like productivity and, and getting better and better at the things we were told we needed to be good at. And so, um, to go to that drawer, that metaphoric drawer, and to get the mercy out and to practice mercy and hope. This actually leads me to my next question, which is, you know, so the, the title of that book you mentioned, uh, the whole one is Hallelujah Anyway, Rediscovering Mercy. And you say that's actually taken from a gospel song that you sing at your church. And, yep. you know, for people who are not Christian or who may be secular, you say there's still a thing that people experience, which you describe as like a hallelujah anyway moment. Uh, can you talk about that? Well, the whole poem, Relax by Ellen Bass, is about that moment. It's about that everything seems to be breaking down, including democracy. And families that I am close to are in a lot of trouble. And that, um, that it seems just kind of hopeless some days but that um, if you look around, um, you start to notice what is still working, that love always works, that kindness always works. And to start to look around, and um, there was this, man, this priest, I think his name was Father Dowling, who helped Bill Wilson get AA off the ground in uh, 1935, although the, father, the priest was not, not himself an alcoholic. But he said, sometimes I think that heaven is just a new pair of glasses. 
and I live by that. And that if I have this the bad pair of glasses on, the judgment or the having this very specially tuned eye for everything that could be better, then I'm unhappy and I don't have hope. I can really tell you for hours the catastrophe of the current political landscape or this or that or the other or or the or or somebody's family that I'm very involved with and who should do and blah blah blah. But if I put on the better pair of glasses, I really notice what is still working. The whole book somehow is about what has always worked in crisis and what will certainly work again. I wrote it so that when I'm gone, my son and my grandson will have a kind of handbook of what always has worked. Anne Lamont is author of best-selling novels, nonfiction, and essays on faith. You can read her next book, Somehow, Thoughts on Love, when it comes out in April. The holidays are often thought of as a time when you're supposed to gather with family. But for a lot of folks, there may be certain family members that they don't want to see. In fact, YouGov conducted a national survey last year in which one in four people said they're estranged from a family member, be it a parent, child, sibling, or grandparent. So joining us to talk about why that might be is Joshua Coleman. He's a psychologist and author of the book, Rules of Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties and How to Heal the Conflict. Joshua, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Is estrangement becoming more common than it used to be? I think it's becoming more common and troublingly, I think it's becoming more acceptable and accepted. I think there's a kind of a social contagion that happens through Instagram and TikTok and Reddit where cutting out your toxic family member is becoming sort of an act of personal expression and identity and rather than what it often is which is an expression more of of avoidance i'm not saying that there aren't places for it of course there are there are abusive problematic parents or family members who no matter how well you communicate with them they're not going to change and they can continue to be abusive and hurtful and destructive in one form or another but i and my colleagues are working with with parents and families where that is is not the case where these are parents who would do anything who are willing to do their own therapy go to family therapy take responsibility and they're being told no my therapist says you're a narcissist or you're a gaslighter and it's a huge problem in our society we have a culture that's very rich in the language of separation and individuation and labeling and diagnosis but a completely impoverished culture around ideas of connectedness and interdependency and, and mutual reliance you've been studying this for a while but i'm interested in how you actually came to be interested in this subject my understanding is it is partly because you are impacted by estrangement in your own family. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I was married and divorced in my 20s and have an adult daughter who I'm very close to now. Mm -hmm. But there was a period of time in her early 20s where she cut off contact with me in part as a result of my becoming remarried and having children from my second, which is my current marriage and her feelings somewhat displaced in many ways. and. Um, so when she was in her early 20s, she had stopped talking to me for really several years, which was easily the most painful, awful thing I've ever been through or hope to go through again. You talk about your own experience being rooted in separation and divorce, but you also talk about the different causes for family estrangement in the U.S. So could you explain more about that? 
So divorce is huge, mm. but it's not the only cause. Um, what many adult children say is, well, it's a, the result of abuse, you know, childhood abuse or neglect. And that's certainly in my, my practice, I see that as well. But here's where it gets complicated. Uh, in the past three or four decades, we've radically changed the notion of what we label uh, harmful, abusive, neglectful, traumatizing behavior. Mm. And so often you have the adult child talking about their childhoods um, as being traumatizing, hurtful, neglectful, et cetera. And the parent going, what are you talking about? You know, I gave you the best childhood imaginable. I would have killed for your childhood. And so they're often really talking past each other in ways. So a lot of my strategy with parents is helping them to learn how to to blend these two concepts so that they're not so alienated. What are the biggest barriers to parents and their adult children repairing and reconnecting the relationship? Well, I think the biggest barrier on the parent's side is just not realizing how much the culture that they grew up with has changed. The idea that the adult child owes the parent something, that they're going to motivate their adult child through guilt or through feelings of obligation. So my mission has really been helping parents to learn how to, to use the language of the adult child, which is much more based around therapeutic concepts. And I think for those parents who can do that, they typically, um, not always, but often have a good deal of success in reconnecting. You know, some people may be listening and thinking like, hey, like I know somebody in this situation. So, you know, for somebody who wants to support a friend or a loved one who's estranged from their parent or, or maybe another family member, what's the best way they can do that? I think the main thing is not to give sort of stock hallmark advice. Sometimes people, if they're talking to an estranged parent, will say, well, don't worry, they'll be back and they'll remember all the good things you did for them. And the truth is that you don't know that. They might not be back. I mean, the majority of estrangements do eventually reconcile, but they don't all reconcile. And sometimes it's a matter of years and it isn't really very therapeutic for people to get false help. I think being willing to hear what they have to say and show compassion and empathy, that's an enormous source of, of support. And I think for, for the adult child, similarly, don't say to them, oh, call your mom or call your dad. You only have one family. It just will cause them to feel misunderstood. We've been speaking with psychologist and author Joshua Coleman. Joshua, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A Navy investigation into the suicide of a sailor on the USS Roosevelt reveals a toxic culture aboard the carrier. Dozens of sailors have left the ship for mental health reasons. And Steve Walsh with member station WHRO in Norfolk explains why. One year ago this month, Jacob Slocum died by suicide. The 23-year-old was a nuclear electrician's mate on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Kim McInerney can't stop thinking about what her son said. He felt that he made the wrong choice. Like, I screwed up, Mom. I screwed up. I should have got out. I should have never gone nuke. Never gone nuke. Working with a nuclear reactor on board an aircraft carrier is one of the most demanding jobs in the Navy. Experts say the staff is under tremendous pressure. Former Petty Officer Caitlin Ross remembers Slocum looking depressed near the time of his death. A lot of people were struggling. It was a really hard time during shipyard. Like, 
it was hard on everybody. On top of 12-hour days, sailors must pass a number of demanding tests to remain qualified to work around the ship's two nuclear power plants. Slocum had fallen months behind, which meant he would have to receive mandatory counseling from the chiefs in the department. The report says some supervisors created a toxic work environment. One chief berated Slocum in front of the crew the day he died. Ross says some leaders put a strain on the whole department. Yeah, the chiefs would counsel, but then they would go way harder than they needed to. I hated counselings, but I heard they were pretty tough on them, especially Jacob. The Navy is trying to get at the root cause of suicides, especially after three sailors died in one month in 2022 on board the USS George Washington. Teresa Daniel with Sullivan University in Louisville researches toxic leadership including in the Army. Several of the people that I interviewed at Fort Leavenworth said, I would rather go back and be deployed to war than have to go back and work for this toxic leader because of the humiliation. The USS Roosevelt reported a spike in mental health visits in June and July of 2022. Almost half of the cases were from the reactor department. As Jacob Slocum fell farther behind on his qualifications, he was sent to a captain's mast to be disciplined, where he expressed that he didn't wish to remain in the Navy. Instead, he was placed on restriction and told to keep trying to qualify. Ross, who left the Navy this year for mental health issues, says she believes the Navy doesn't have enough nuclear-qualified sailors. Their whole mindset is if you can pass the schooling, which is Jacob did, and make it to the fleet, They really don't want to lose nukes. Since June of 2022, 24 sailors have left the USS Roosevelt for mental health reasons, six from the reactor department. In boot camp, Slocum expressed thoughts of suicide, but the ship's doctors told investigators that he didn't repeat those concerns to them. His mother, Kim McInerney, says the Navy should have recognized the toxic environment on board the carrier. I feel like if the captain would have just taken a couple minutes to really talk to Jacob. Jacob may have opened up a bit more. The Navy's report said a small number of people were sanctioned as a result of Jacob Slocum's death, but faced no court-martial or removal from the Navy. Navy officials have yet to provide further details, but Slocum's mother says unless leaders are removed, she fears there will be more cases like her son. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call, text, or chat with the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline at 988. Veterans, press 1. This is NPR News. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights. Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advance tickets required at stonezoo.org. Good afternoon, I'm Josie Guarino. Coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, the crisis at the southern border and how cities are struggling to provide services to a record number of migrants. On the New Yorker Radio Hour, beginning at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. The Patriots lost to the Buffalo Bills this afternoon, 27-21. to Bruins are on the road in Detroit to play the Red Wings. And the Celtics take on the Spurs in San Antonio tonight at 7. This is WBUR.
I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Russia launched a French fresh drone attack on Ukraine, injuring nearly 30 after promising that the strikes on the Russian border city of Belgorod that killed 24 would not go unpunished. Ukraine's Air Force says it shot down 21 of 49 drones launched by Russia overnight. A California law banning people from carrying firearms in most public places will take effect tomorrow, even as a court case continues to challenge it. A judge blocked the law December 20th, but yesterday a federal appeals court put a hold on that ruling, allowing the law to take effect while the legal fight continues. And security will be tight in New York City tonight with thousands of officers on hand as around a million people are expected for the dropping of the Times Square New Year's Ball. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. And for this week's Enlighten Me segment, we're revisiting a conversation Rachel Martin had with the author Catherine May. Her most recent book is about facing life's uncertainties by tapping into a sense of enchantment. Do you remember being enchanted as a child, like a specific image, event, mm. conversation that mesmerized you in that way? Yes. And in fact, the the memories from childhood are actually very small things, but they felt so important to me. So I used to spend a lot of time sitting in my back garden, smashing rocks open with a hammer. <laughs> and we didn't have iPads in those days. Like, life was hard. <laughs> very enchanting activity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it probably says a lot about my childhood, but, you know, like, Every, I don't know, 10th or 20th stone would have like a little geode of crystals inside it. Ah. And that was absolutely magical to me. Yeah. I could uncover this little tiny cave that was millions of years old and which nobody had ever seen before. And there were loads of small things like that. And I guess there's that time when everything feels heightened and everything feels very possible. And I think we almost deliberately shut that down as we get older. You did not grow up in a religious household, is that right? No, not at all. Um, and in fact, probably the opposite of a religious household, if that's possible. <laughs> like a, a household that felt very resistant to the idea of organised religion. Mm -hmm. um, and which equally thought that people with more vague spiritual beliefs were a little bit cringeworthy. So I, I do worry what my family thinks of me these days. Um, <laughs> but I <laughs> I did go to um, church schools. Like it's, it's really common in the UK to go to church schools. Um, and I always actually loved the religious bits of my church schools without believing in it. The, the notion of God is complicated, right? But mm. um, for many of us, it's the word, the term, the idea that we use to mm. connote something bigger. What does that mean to you? Oh, I'd love to be able to answer that question. If only <laughs> this huge word, this huge three letter word, God, which I've never 
felt a connection with in any definition that I've been given. And yet, as I've gone through life, I've also felt like there is something there that I can't define and that nobody else's definition does it for me. And I begin to think that it's the the questing after that that's the point of this, actually. Like, rather than the knowing, rather than the certainty and the solidification of this idea, that the thing that is most enlightening to me is that constant search for connection with this ineffable thing. For me, I wouldn't even say being. It's like a force that I sense sometimes. Yeah. Do you pray? Yeah, I do. And I always have, actually. It's something I learned to do when I was at school. And I did it by rote then. But I've never stopped. And and for the longest time, I haven't known who I'm talking to. (laughs) (laughs) Question. Like, I went to, you know, a religious school growing up, too. And prayer was kind of the deal. Like, Mm. you learned how to do it. There were, like, very specific things that you were supposed to say. Or, you know, in our tradition it was like a presbyterian church school mm. uh you just free form you know you just dear god this is what's on my mind <laughs> gonna have a nice little chat like with super you cash yeah <laughs> yeah um as an adult um i haven't figured out that language it, mm. it, i will admit that it feels like silly to me like i can't get over my own self-consciousness about it yeah yeah you have faced some of that too? Oh my goodness, so much of that. It was something I decided to kind of work on about a decade ago, actually, that I I realised I had this urge in me to pray, and yet I felt silly about every single instance of trying to do it. I, You know, like, I'd learned all these formulas for saying a group of words together, and it didn't make any sense to me at all. And I also, I was really troubled by how I'd been taught to pray, which was kind of to ask for stuff in lots of ways. And I began to think of it as entering a state of prayerfulness rather than of praying. Um, It was an act of communion and an act of kind of trying to share what was in my mind and my heart in as honest and direct a way as I could. Because to me... What this greater being could do was know me in a way that no one else could know me. Can you tell me about the well? Because that Mm. anecdote feels prayerful in a way. (laughs) So I'm lucky enough to live near Canterbury, um, which is an ancient site of pilgrimage, and it's part of a far greater pilgrim's way that stretches all the way across Europe. Uh, a friend of mine told me that she had found this well, this this pilgrim's well, that she'd been visiting, and she took me to see it. And I didn't really know what to expect, but it's actually quite a forgotten little well. It's, uh, you know, it's a thousand years old, probably, um, and it's hidden behind a giant overgrown rose bush. <laughs> um, and so we crawled through the bush. I lost my coat in the process and came to this beautiful stone surrounding with 
a, a little pool at the bottom and uh, a, a well was springing up into that pool. So every now and then you'd see bubbles coming up into this beautiful still pool of water. And then there were several steps down to that pool. And that was such a, I don't know, a magical moment for me because the thing with those little set of steps was that you could only go down there alone. And as you went down the steps, you felt your sense of intention changing. Like our ancestors have worked out how to create this perfect little environment for reflection and literal reflection because you get down there and you see your face reflected in the pool as well as all of nature around you as well and there's something about the quality of that place that that you knew that other people had come down there in the same frame of mind as you had but over centuries um, and yeah, it's a it's an absolutely beautiful, magical place. And I hesitate to tell you all about it in case you will go <laughs> you there don't too. You have to give me the GPS coordinates. <laughs> oh, all right then. Maybe just for you. <laughs> but what was especially profound for me in reading that part is the responsibility that you have, that the individual mm. has to make the meaning. Mm. Right. Like no. the well won't do it for you. I'm reading now. This is from mm. the section of the book about this. Once yeah. you're there, you're on your own. It offers no clues for what to do, no liturgy or ceremony. At the bottom of those steps, you must confront your own yearning to make meaning. The water reflects only mm. your troubled face. You are the one who fills the well. And that felt um, like a little sad to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, empowering, yes, great. I get to create my own meaning. But like, <laughs> really? I have to do Damn it, I just wanted to tell me what to do. Yes, Catherine. Yes. Sometimes you do nope. want the well to tell you or to make all that is, you know, enigmatic, mysterious, complicated, difficult, clear <laughs> in its reflection. But that's the oh, whole point, but, right? Is that it's sort of But a, Rachel, yeah. You know you don't like that already, I right? Know. <laughs> I know. It's true. All of your contact with religion so far has told you that actually you hate that bit. You it's hate true. being told what meanings it's to make. It's true. Yeah. 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 No. But that is it's, and us. that's that's the change that I had to undergo and that I I do think loads of us would benefit from undergoing is this this dropping of wanting to be told the answers because they're just not there. There are no answers. Yeah. And simple answers quickly turn into horrible, generalised strictures on our lives as, as soon as we start taking them in. Yeah. And the, the learning for us is to sit with mystery and to be able to get comfortable with not knowing and not understanding and feeling a little lost quite often and going out and looking for spontaneous truths because actually there's very few universal ones. Before I let you go, can you tell me about the moon shadow? Ah, oh, yes. I love this story. Yeah, so I didn't realise that there is a regular schedule of meteor storms happening above our heads all through the year. And so I went with my family to a dark skies zone in the UK where I was most likely to see a certain meteor storm. These are designated areas where you can't have artificial light. 
yes, that's right. I thought I had a really good chance of seeing these meteors. And what I found instead was a supermoon. And the supermoon was so bright that it blocked out all other points of light in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) But what it showed me instead was Mm. my own moon shadow. I'm not sure I really realised that they were real. And I was so enchanted by this incredibly fragile apparition of myself being cast by the moon, like a shadow within a shadow. It was a shadow on tonight, you know. And it made me realise, I guess, you know, exactly what I've just been saying, which is that we rarely get the answers we're looking for. We often get a completely different answer about a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. And seeing my own moon shadow was magical to me, completely magical. And to play in that, you know, to play with my own shadow, just like a child might do. And I, yeah, I had no idea it was out there waiting for me. <laughs> the book is called Enchantment. Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. It's written by Catherine May. Catherine, what a pleasure to talk with you about these things. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That was so lovely. As I'm being followed by a moon shadow, moon shadow, moon shadow. For the last few weeks, we've been talking to some of the directors of All Things Considered about the music they've listened to most this year. We've been calling it All Things Considered Wrapped. Directors, by the way, are sort of like orchestra conductors for radio. And to close out the year, my colleague Scott Detrow spoke to the director of all directors on our show, Jonas Adams. Every director had to pick a theme for the kind of music that they listened to. Uh, What was your theme for this year? You're a father, so I'm hoping you can relate. The majority of the songs (laughs) that I listened to this whole year were picked by my kids. They're the ones they wanted to hear over and over and over. So I really had no choice but to name my theme. My kids have the ox. Your kids have the ox. Your kids are in control of what music is being played. I get it. I live that life too. You've got a big squad though, so I imagine even conceding this, that you have no control, you are being pulled in different directions, different times musically. Absolutely. And um, we're going to start with my two boys here. So we'll start with my sons, Austin and Jace. They're both really heavy into comic books, graphic novels, superheroes, all of it. They're into all, all of it. it. Yes, absolutely. And that means that they're really, really into Spider-Man. And Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, we all went to go see it as a family. And it easily is our favorite movie of the entire year, hands down. I wanted to go with the first song on the soundtrack that they really love. It's called Annihilate. Another one of their favorites from that soundtrack, and mine as well, I won't front, is Am I Dreaming? This song, it plays just as the credits are about to roll in the movie, and if you've seen the movie, you know it gets really dramatic. When those strings start to play, I can't explain it. It, it just hits you in a different way. The song is incredible to me, and Royce's voice is perfection to me on this. My daughter sings this one in the house all the time. I love it. Uh, the sequel was like a little too scary for my five-year-old, so we've watched it maybe just once as opposed to the 600 times of the first one. But the soundtrack to the first one was our soundtrack for the ride to school for like a full year, so your sons have great taste is what I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've got a daughter too, though. What is she listening to in addition to singing the Spider-Man music? My daughter Joy, the four-year-old ringleader. Everything changed when we went to see the Super Mario Brothers movie in theater. <laughs> and this is her top request, Peaches by Jack Black. Peach, you're so cool. And with my star, we're gonna rule. This, I just need to point out this is the second week in a row something related to Mario Brothers has made it into this segment, and that's okay. Mario had a big year. He had a big year. <laughs> Scott, my wife, and I have played this song way more times than we care to admit, but it's hilarious, and Jack Black really goes all out playing the voice of Bowser. Um, I have a video in my phone right now of my daughter singing this to me in my face, nose to nose at the top of her little lungs. She loves it. She made us play the song over and over. I mean, there's a clear theme here of movie soundtracks. Is that intentional or did that just kind of happen as the year played out? I didn't even realize it until I got into it, but it's somewhat intentional, I guess. I do love soundtracks. I love scores to uh, a good movie. Um, When it's done right, it really takes the movie to another level for me. And I think that's why I love directing All Things Considered so much. Um, I get to control the overall feeling of the show and help add a little more texture to it. I really enjoy that a lot. The songs I chose today, though, just happen to be from the soundtracks my family and I enjoyed the most. Well, we always appreciate the feel and direction you place on the 